This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. Well, good afternoon, one and all. I trust you're having a good day. Not nearly so muggy today, is it, Claudette? No, my goodness, over the weekend. Yeah, it was, it definitely was muggy. It was something we weren't used to. No, my husband, who was out of town, texted me. He said, how's everything going there? I said, oh, man, I'm sweating just breathing. (laughs) It was wickedly warm. Yeah, it was. Uh, And uh, I assumed it was because of Hurricane Lee pushing all that tropical air up this way. It's like whenever you go to like a a warm, warmer climbs. Yeah. And you're like, oh, right. I forgot. That's how it is. It's kind of heavy and pushing me towards the ground. Um, it, it feels heavier, doesn't it? It does. And also the, the wind at, at times was just crazy, you know, just coupled with the heat. It was but just But it was strange. sporadic. It was it like, was you know, very sporadic. it's not very windy and all of a sudden it's windy and now it's not very windy again. <laughs> it was kind of a weird one. Anyway, Hurricane Lee uh, did cause some gusty winds and some heavy rain in some areas of the province this weekend. But luckily the storm had weakened significantly before passing through the Strait of Belle Isle. But one of the more notable effects of Hurricane Lee, as uh, Claudette and I just mentioned, was the warm, muggy air that it pushed up into the area. Well, I spoke with Environment Canada meteorologist David Neal earlier today. Well, hello, David. Hello, how are you doing today? Good. Barely a day goes by. We don't have a chat, but there's so much going on weather-wise. So Lee passed through the area or pushed some air up into the area, I guess, uh, over the weekend. And uh, man, was it humid on the Avalon Peninsula. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so as you mentioned, yeah, we did have uh, a much more uh, humid air mass that moved up uh, uh, a little bit of that is obviously associated with with Lee, so uh, we did see some uh, some kind of higher temperatures for the, the, you'd ex- than you'd expect for kind of that you know like mid September time frame. But uh, yeah, definitely some very humid conditions uh, as well. So, did we uh, hit any records uh, on the Avalon or anywhere else? Uh, there were a few a few stations that did set some new records on the 16th and 17th. Actually, uh, the Placentia Argentia area, uh, both days set uh, new records, getting into the uh, kind of low to mid 20s for daytime highs. Uh, also on the uh, on the 17th, a couple other locations, Daniels Harbor and uh, and Winterland. So a little kind of dispersed uh, uh, parts of the island, mainly in the east. But, yeah, I did have one uh, station there in, on the west coast as well that uh, that did set a new record for uh, for temperatures, for, for, for daily high temperatures. Now, we talk a lot about the Humidex, and I understand that the Humidex did get a little high on the weekend, but uh, that dew point is what makes you feel so miserable. Tell us a little bit about that and, and what kind of what it reached and, and why that has an impact on how we feel. Uh, so basically, the um, the dew point is uh, it, at, a, at a constant pressure. The uh, the temperature that you would have to cool the air to in order to achieve saturation. So typically, when those dew points are higher or, or closer to your your temperature, uh, that's where you get those really really humid, sticky conditions uh, that, you, that you feel when outside. And and the humidex is is related to that uh, in the sense that basically when the way the way the body cools itself is, is to perspire or to sweat. 
But when there's uh, that level of humidity in the air, when, when there's the, those high dew points or those dew points that are closer to your, your air temperature, uh, the sweat doesn't evaporate as efficiently. So you feel a lot warmer. And that's where that Humidex uh, rating or the Humidex value comes from. So, yeah, certainly those, uh, those dew points. And what we saw on uh, just kind of looking at uh, just St. John's, just as an example, uh, we saw dew points getting up into uh, around 2021 and uh, really hovering between 19 and 20. 21 for uh, quite a few hours there, uh, yes, through the day yesterday with uh, with those uh, you know those low to mid 20s temperatures. Not a lot of uh, difference between the dew point and those high temperatures. So definitely uh, would feel quite uh, quite muggy and quite sticky outside for sure. Yeah. So when when is the dew point? I guess most com- where, where is that comfort level? I suppose typically. Uh, well. Well, basically, what we just as an example, uh, just looking here. So, um, looking at some of the hourly data, uh, St. John's Airport hit 25 degrees with a 19 uh, degree dew point uh, that produced a humidex of 32. Uh, so, it feels what it feels like outside is a low 30s type of day. Uh, so, at that at that stage with that level of humidity, that's you know getting to feel a little bit uncomfortable. Um, typically, for say our heat warnings. Um, if we're just using a humidex rating, you want it upwards of uh, the 36, and that's where we start uh, for, for Newfoundland and Labrador with uh, with putting a heat warning based strictly on a humidex value. So low, 20, low 30s you are in humidex, you are starting to uh, get a, that little bit of discomfort, and then as you get uh, obviously up towards uh, mid-30s, it's uh, starting to feel quite, uh, as you mentioned, oppressive outside. Yeah, I did a little screen grab because I found it so overwhelming yesterday. I'm looking at it now uh, around 12 o'clock. The temperature was uh, 22.5 degrees Celsius. The dew point was 21.4. Humidity, 94%. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and at that point, it is it is uh, starting to feel quite, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, quite muggy outside and uh, certainly not... Not not it's it, that's not really a day you'd really kind of uh, associate with you know mid September for sure. Um, but yeah, it's uh, certainly would feel uh, rather uncomfortable outside. Thankfully, that didn't last. Uh, was Lee to blame for that tropical type of air? That would have uh, you would have gotten that uh, that push uh, you know partly influenced there getting that uh, those southerlies those warm uh, moist humid sticky southerly winds that were coming up with that so that certainly helped uh, draw that air uh, northward um, but yes as we uh, as we see the passage of Lee there now expecting those uh, dew points uh, to be on a, a bit of a steady decline throughout uh, throughout today. And what kind of uh, lasting impacts is uh, that storm going to have on us here in Newfoundland and Labrador? Uh, well, that's going to continue off um, off to the northeast. Now it's uh, pretty much just seeing some some lingering patchy drizzle along parts of the west coast. A little bit of a, a lingering uh, uh, rain with that, but overall that's going to pretty well uh, uh, truck away from the island. Some still some some gusty winds over a few areas, but that will gradually decrease as we go through the day today. Uh, so Lee is being pretty close to being uh, being done with the region at this point. David Neal, really appreciate your time. Thank you. Not a problem. Thanks for having me on. 
And that's uh, Environment Canada meteorologist David Neal, who I spoke with earlier today. Well, the local medical community is mourning the sudden passing of a physician who made a huge contribution to women's health in the province and beyond. Dr. Adamajit Singh, an OBGYN who worked at the Women's Health Centre at the Health Sciences in St. John's, passed away suddenly last week. Premier Andrew Fury posted a tribute to Dr. Gill to social media, calling him an amazing doctor and gentleman. Premier Fury joins me now on the line. Very sad news, Premier. Uh, tell us your memories of Dr. Gill. Oh, it's, uh, it's devastating news. Uh, of course, um, I think, you know, as the province grieves, our, our first uh, thoughts and, and prayers go immediately to, to his family. Uh, but uh, the man made an impact on so many um, throughout the province, of course, directly with patients and a legacy through teaching. Um, I first uh, got to know him as a medical student and, of course, didn't take the, the surgical trajectory that he did, but uh, got to work together um, through Team Broken Earth and uh, the passion that he brought uh, to teaching uh, people in in other countries uh, to show them how to deliver uh, babies safely, how to care for women safely and effectively was uh, was inspirational, and uh, you know, uh, the province has, has lost a, a, a good surgeon. Uh, the world has lost a good teacher, and I've certainly lost a friend. What kind of a difference did he make? Uh, well, I mean, his legacy in the, alone in the, in the people that he taught here in the province. Uh, the, you know, he's been at Memorial for decades. Um, and so a large portion of uh, the people who are delivering babies today in, in Newfoundland and Labrador were taught in some way uh, by Dr. Gill. Um, I remember one time in, in, in back of Bangladesh with Dr. Gill, our host, uh, saying what an immediate impact it would have uh, on, the, on the people uh, we were teaching. And, and it really it didn't it strike me until you realize the population of Dhaka, Bangladesh is almost 20 million people. And, and the people that we were speaking with were going to be delivering babies that night or the next day. And so uh, his legacy of uh, safe maternal care uh, and surgical care will be, uh, will be felt uh, for generations to come. And how did he get involved in Team Broken Earth? Well, of course, as you know, we started the the organization uh, after the earthquake in, in Port-au-Prince, and uh, was mainly we were mainly focused on uh, trauma and critical care and pediatric care. Uh, and it became obvious that there was an, an incredible need for maternal fetal care as well. So, but that's well beyond my my scope of, of practice. Um, and it's and, you know as much as true as the backbone of, of, of Broken Earth, we, uh, Dr. Gill and I and, and some others started having conversations in, in the OR lounge and over coffees, and we decided we would uh, take a take a leap and, and try to pull off a, a maternal and otherwise an obstetric gynecological uh, teaching course in in Dhaka, Bangladesh. And, uh, and Dr. Gill was a true champion, a true organizer, and a true leader of that course. Um, and that was, God, that was five or six years ago, maybe even more now, Linda. And um, his impact will, again, be felt uh, not just in that country, but uh, in many countries around the world. 
Premier Fury, we're sorry for your loss and the and the loss felt by his uh, family and the many many people whose lives he touched. Really appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much. That's uh, Premier Andrew Fury on the passing of Dr. Adam Jit Singh, an OBGYN who worked uh, here at the Women's Health Centre in uh, St. John's and who passed away suddenly last week. Well, coming up, the lineup for the 34th and 4th, I'm sorry, annual St. John's International Film Festival is officially released. This is News Talk on VOCM. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration, shows and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. And we're back. Well, the St. John's International Women's Film Festival has announced this year's lineup of uh, films. The five-day festival will see events split between two locations with all screenings taking place at the Majestic Theatre and industry events happening at the Alt Hotel. VOCM's Richard Duggan was at the Alt Hotel this morning for the announcement. Here's some of what board chair Vicki Murphy and Picture NL CEO Laura Churchill had to say. So, the biggest movie of the year was written and directed by a woman. Yay! Yay. You knew I was going to bring some Barbie metaphors up in here. Um, So I'm talking about a Barbie movie, of course, and there's this hilarious scene in the movie where the CEO of Mattel and his gang of bumbling man-children chase Barbie around headquarters, determined to stop her from disrupting their patriarchal world. You know, the real world that we live in. Um, He says, no one rests until this doll is back in the box. So Barbie is dangerous, so of course Barbie must be contained. So the St. John's International Women's Film Festival is a celebration of stories that refuse to be contained. There's my metaphor. Uh, There's stories, you know, that show how women and gender diverse folks see the world. Stories told with unfiltered truth and empathy, where women are the heart and the center. Uh, Maybe even where the whole story is just women talking. Stories that are unapologetically pink or dark and scary and angry, or just plain wacky. Uh, A quote from Weird Barbie, I can do the splits, I have a funky haircut, and I smell like basement. (laughs) There's nothing more dangerous than a woman with a story to tell. Greta Gerwig is breaking records all over the place, all over the world. Sarah Polly brought home the Oscar, and we're really hoping to see her at our festival in a couple weeks, maybe. Uh, Deanne Foley is directing Son of a Critch and Hudson and Rex right now here at home. Alison White has produced two new films that, are, that just premiered, The King Tide and Sweetland. Ruth Lawrence, we'll get to her in a second. She's here somewhere. <laughs> My point is there's no shortage of talent, and it's all around our festival. Guys, the very first film submission I watched when I joined the board of directors a couple years ago was a little 19-minute French-Canadian film called Marguerite, and that little film was later nominated for an Academy Award. And I'm still talking about it, because <laughs> I didn't realize it at the time. Talent is in our midst, so we must give it what it needs to grow. Money, opportunities, and screen time. And the more we do all of that, the more talent there will be, and the more stories we will tell, and the closer we will get to total world domination, or, you know, equality. This little speech from the chair feels like the same rally cry every year because, you know, it bears repeating. And it's good to remind us why we're here and why this festival is so important. Women in film have come a long way, and we celebrate that, but we have not come far enough. 
So like Barbie, women and gender diverse creatives have spent way too much time contained in a box. The only box we're going to occupy now is the box office. So on behalf of, I know I was holding back on that line. <laughs> Uh, so on behalf of our board of directors, um, I thank everyone who continues to help us make that happen. Our small but mighty staff, led by the brilliant Jen Brown. We see and heard you work, all of you, and we thank you so much. Uh, thank you to everyone who buys a ticket to our festival. Uh, you keep showing up for our filmmakers and their art. Uh, seeing your eyes twinkle in the glow of our silver screen is the greatest reward. And a huge thank you to our sponsors, and I know a lot of you are here. Uh, this 34th annual St. John's International Women's Film Festival just would not be possible without you. I'm honored to speak with you today as CEO of Picture L to celebrate the 34th St. John's International Women's Film Festival. It is in great part due to the festival that I'm in this role today. Thirteen years ago, as a young woman trying to forge a career in Newfoundland and Labrador, the St. John's International Women's Film Festival showed me that I could take up space, become a leader, and confidently pursue a career in film and television. I want to thank the festival, board and staff, and especially its founder, Noreen Golfman, for giving young women... for giving young women like myself an opportunity to be bold, to be confident, and to show ourselves and the world what we are capable of. I'd also like to take this time to thank Premier Fury, Minister Crocker, and the provincial government for their continued support, and for recognizing that film and television is a growth industry that can diversify our economy and keep Newfoundlanders and Labradorians working right here in our province. Amidst uncertainty and challenges today in the global industry, it is because of this support that Newfoundland and Labrador has held strong, showcasing local productions to global audiences. Each year, the St. John's International Women's Film Festival presents world-class cinema, exciting networking events, and top-tier professional development opportunities. Not only does this festival showcase local films made by women, it also brings industry professionals from across Canada to our very doorstep allowing our local industry to access decision-makers that help bring their projects to life. When Picture NL is promoting our industry abroad, I am always asked, how can you get me to the Women's Film Festival? <laughs> this is a testament to the world-class reputation this event has earned. For this, Picture NL commends you. As one of the most sought-after festivals on the circuit, I'm excited to see what this year has in store. Congratulations to Executive, Executive Director Jen Brown and the board and staff on your 34th year. So there you go, 34 years. Can you just imagine? And I find it hard to believe that uh, time is flying like it is. St. John's International Fil uh, Women's Film Festival taking place October 17th to the 24th this year. Uh, looks like it's all in person because uh, they've been doing this bit of a COVID hybrid for the last couple of years, um, Claudette, as you recall. Yeah, it's going to be nice to actually have it. I think it's at the Majestic. The Majestic and Theater. And also yeah. Alt Hotel for all of the, the events as well, yeah. Yeah, interesting. It's not in the cinema, though. They used to do it up at the... Uh, Avalon Mall there for a while but uh, changing things up changing things up for sure so very interesting and that's always um, uh, you know uh, there's always like a variety of uh, film not just uh, local or Canadian but international in scope oftentimes and uh, sometimes the films are you know really big like 
well-known blockbusters as well that people may be familiar with who are not you know, following film closely, if you know yeah, what I mean. Yeah, I found that interesting how uh, <clears throat> she said that, you know, she just started out watching this little show called Marguerite, and then it goes on to win an Academy Award. So that's how powerful, like you said, that these movies are, or these uh, films are. Um, I think it'll be interesting to know what's going to happen. I'd like to just watch a few of them and then see how they grow uh, in the media. For sure. I'm always a, a big fan of the shorts, you yeah. know, like uh, 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 something that's crafted in such a way that it will tell you a story and very you know it doesn't need to be overly complicated right i'm not into this big cgi and slow burns i don't know sometimes i get annoyed with slow burns i like the yeah get to the point short and those are probably the hardest to do right you have to be concise Mm -hmm. and get your points across and and still be very impactful yeah and get away from all the formulaic stuff but that's just me. That's just me, the film critic speaking now. Uh, not to say that any of these films are fall into those genres, but man, oh man, I cannot. My husband says, you're the worst person to bring through film. Because you're always like, oh, I can tell what's happening here now. You know, it's all those formulaic, okay, and this is the protagonist, yeah. and this is the bad oh, guy. Oh, you must really love are- Hallmark. <laughs> 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 I will reserve comments. Yes. Um, but yeah, like just some imagination would be great. Anyway. <laughs> You'll find that with the St. John's International Yeah, Women's I will Festival. find it there for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, uh, I'll tell you who else has a great imagination, and that's Noah Shepard, who's going to be hosting the uh, news coming up now momentarily on VOCM. When we come back, a Luxembourg sees its first ever Terry Fox Walk for Cancer Research, thanks to a young Newfoundland family. And we'll tell you that amazing story when we come back right after this. This is News Talk on VOCM. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Well, Claudette, this next story will warm your heart, no doubt. Uh, Newfoundland family is making a big difference for cancer patients in far-off Luxembourg. Julia Dauphiné of St. John's moved to Luxembourg years ago after her husband got a job with NATO. While there, their 20-month-old daughter, Caroline, was diagnosed with brain cancer and endured numerous treatments in Paris, France. That's a good four-hour drive away on the best of days. Now, six year, um, uh, Caroline is six years old and three years in remission, and she held what's believed to be Luxembourg's very first Terry Fox run on the weekend. Her mom, Julia, joins me by phone from Luxembourg. Hello. Hello, Linda. Nice to speak with you. Yeah. How are things in Luxembourg today? They are great. We are still having summer in Luxembourg, so it's a nice 22 degrees today. Wonderful. And I understand that Luxembourg had its very first Terry Fox run this past weekend, and your daughter had a big role to play there. Tell us a little bit about it. Yes, I'm not sure if Luxembourg has ever had a Terry Fox run before, but we had our own homemade sort of grassroots Terry Fox run on Sunday. We made our own signs. And uh, my daughter, Caroline, it was her initiative. She's six years old and in grade one. And uh, we had read the story this summer of Terry Fox. We bought a a children's version of the story of Terry Fox while we were in Canada. And she decided she wanted to be a helper like Terry. 
So she set a goal of $100, and she raised over 1000 So we did our walk on Sunday. That's amazing. And she has some other similarities with Terry Fox. She's been through her own journey. Yes. When she was 20 months old, she was diagnosed with brain cancer. And uh, she did most of her treatment here in Luxembourg and also in Paris, France. Um, and it was a really rough road. I mean, she had the whole works, to be honest, chemo, surgery, radiation, everything. And now she's been in remission for over three years. So these stories really get her engine going. She really loves to be a helper and to help other children and families. Well, God love her. So was she aware of this story before you read her the, the book? No, actually, and it hadn't occurred to me either. I mean, we try to, you know, maintain, you know, Canadian traditions and, and things like that. We celebrate Canadian Thanksgiving um, and teach our kids all of that because we are living abroad, of course. Um, but we had never really talked about Terry Fox, and she just took to the story. Uh, she wanted to read it over and over again. And during the, her first week of school, she brought the book with her to school every day. So her class heard the story, too. So we think next year we might have a few more participants in the Terry Fox run in Luxembourg. So she's spreading the word. Yeah, she sure is. Wow, that's amazing. So, um, uh, you know, how do you feel about this? You know, I'm I'm really proud of her. I'm really proud to see that she is taking these initiatives uh, at her young age and getting involved uh, in fundraising and in activism, anything for, for cancer research. One of the big things that stood out for the two of us when we read the story was that um, I didn't know this, but when Terry Fox was diagnosed, he had a, a 50% chance of survival, but three years before it would have been 15% only. And it was the cancer research strides that, that made the big difference for him and that started him thinking that he wanted to to contribute to to this life-changing research and so that was a message that we really said wow we have to help too and growing up in st john's and uh, surrounding area you were probably really uh well aware of terry fox and the terry fox run did you ever imagine that you'd be uh participating in this kind of a way Oh, gosh, absolutely not. I mean, I have distinct memories of, of seeing the videos um, in, in school and participating in the run. And uh, one year, his mom, Betty Fox, uh, came to our school to talk to the students. So I have all of those those memories. And, you know, a few years ago, I, I believe he was nominated as CBC's Greatest Canadian. But I had never thought that I would be sort of bringing that with me and, and into my family years and years later. But it was a great day. We had a great time. Well, congratulations to Caroline for being so motivated. A thousand dollars, imagine. So, uh, what would that be in francs in Luxembourg? How does that work? Uh, it would be in euros. So, I suppose some around seven hundred, eight hundred euros. Wow, just amazing. Well, congratulations mm -hmm. to Caroline and the Dauphiné family. I really appreciate your time. Uh, thanks a lot, Linda. It was a pleasure speaking to you. Isn't that sweet little Caroline Dauphiné, uh, six years old, three years now, in remission, held what's believed to be Luxembourg's very first Terry Fox run. And she, her goal was to uh, raise a equivalent of a Canadian $100, and she raised 1000 That's fabulous. And yeah. now all her little friends in school know about Terry Fox. I love that. I love how she said it was grassroots first, and now that it can only get better every year. 
just uh, just amazing. And you know, her mother has a bit of a history when it comes to uh, advocating for uh, cancer as well. And um, uh, I I know a little bit about this story, and I taped her earlier about that. So uh, we'll have a little bit more about that. She's made some really big changes in Luxembourg when it comes to cancer care and the like. So uh, good on the Dauphiné family. Now I understand. There's a, a motor vehicle accident. accident, and traffic is backed up quite a bit on the Outer Ring Road. We just had a call from Rob, uh, who's in the thick of it, and he said uh, there's an accident uh, on the Outer Ring Road. It uh, it appears to be eastbound near Team Guju Highway, and it is backed up a lot to the point that it's even affecting, I think, westbound traffic as well. So westbound is gridlocked um, between Team Guju and Allendale Road, and it's at least... I believe around three kilometers at least. Oh my goodness. Any word on what could be no. behind that? Just, just noticed just, some kind of an accident. Just that there's an accident eastbound, but he doesn't understand why it's gridlocked westbound. Wow. And yeah. you know, from the newsroom, just over your shoulder there, uh, if you look out the window, you can actually see that seg- segment of the Outer Ring Road, like over that ridge. Yep. So I bet you, you can see the, the, the vehicles the at a standstill up there now. Exactly. So I can just imagine now what, tra- you know, people just not hearing about it and then having to be stuck in that traffic. And you know what's going to happen then? That's going to cause people who are hearing us now and uh, say, okay, I'm going to take a different route because I don't want to get stuck in that. And then everybody um, is. <laughs> and then it, that all gets moved on to Goldstone and Thorburn Road and that whole area Cam starts Mount to Road. get yeah. Mount Road starts to get blocked up. So be aware of that. Use your patience. This is the cause of any slowdowns that you encounter a bit of an accident up on the Outer Ring Road now and we'll give you more information on that uh, throughout the course of the afternoon. Well, uh, coming up, some uh, getting some long-awaited recognition. A deceased veteran's family finally gets the war medals to which he is entitled. This is News Talk on VOCM. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. And we're back. Well, Housing Minister Sean Fraser says the federal Liberals plan to introduce legislation soon that would eliminate the GST from new rental housing construction. Fraser says the bill would also backdate the change to mid-September, regardless of when it becomes law. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's promise to extend the deadline for small businesses to repay COVID-19 emergency loans would be expected... Uh, extended, sorry, by a year under that same bill. That comes as parliamentarians return to Ottawa today as the House of Commons resumes sitting after a summer break. And of course, housing, a big topic of discussion uh, front and centre there. Not only is uh, the uh, cost of housing, the availability of housing, the availability of um, affordable housing, a huge issue right across uh, Canada, but also the cost of groceries. And uh, the federal government uh, sitting down today, top executives from Canada's major grocery chains are in Ottawa to meet with uh, Finance Minister Christian Freeland and Industry Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne. It comes after Prime Minister Justin Trudeau asked major grocers last week to come up with a plan by Thanksgiving to stabilize prices. The call comes as grocery prices rose 8.5% year over year in July, running much hotter than overall inflation 
inflation at 3.3%. And I guess the big question is why? A lot of people pointing to uh, the grocery chains to come up with those kinds of answers, but it's not just the grocery chains that are, um, you know, the problem here, I would guess, is that, you know, you've noticed it yourself, no doubt, Claudette, is this whole idea of shrinkflation whereby the thing that you used to get for X amount of money might be the same price, but you're getting a whole lot less of it. And when that you when that happened, in, you know, I mean, this has been going on years before mm-hmm. all of this grocery problems now in terms of price, but I remember I actually felt that it was deceitful. You know, I mean, now I I get it's because the price of everything is going up. So they're doing it, you know, because of the price. But when this happened years ago, I really thought it was them trying, you know, people trying to get to uh, pull the wool over our eyes for lack of a better word. Well, I mean, you talk about deceitful oftentimes, you know, uh, especially like I'm going to throw something out there like snack items. Yeah, because if you're a parent, you're buying snack items to pop in your child's uh, lunch box or Mm -hmm. whatever the case may be so you buy a box of snack items and the box is a certain size right right and yet all the items in that box are also packaged so you've got this excess of packaging but it also hides the fact that the volume is down yes right because the packages themselves take up a certain volume Mm -hmm. so if you had these loose in a big box you'd be like sure there's nothing in that (laughs) right so true yeah but now they're all in these individual packages so you feel all these different packages going around i'm a shaker (laughs) i say shaking in front of you um you know it's it is it's a form of Deceit, deception, um, but and there's another way to look at like there's so many angles. Obviously, we never want like change when we get less for what we pay and pay for more. We just we just absolutely hate that. Um, when it comes to snack items, perhaps if there's less in the bag, it's healthier for us. You know, you're not if you're eating less of that, that's a good thing. But that's the only thing that I can come up with in terms of. But I'm not paying more for it, sure. Yeah, exactly. I mean, (laughs) I keep going back to years ago when you would get 700 and something grams of cheese for $5 or $4. And then they just, it started going down and down and down for more. And that just, I gotta say it rotted me, Linda. It really did. (laughs) Claudette, you should be out in the streets. Uh, don't get me started, though. That really drives me crazy. But honestly, yeah. uh, where is it all going to end is the question that I hear people say. Yeah. We're all, you have to buy food. And it's not that some people don't want to charge. I mean, people like the restaurants, um, restaurateurs don't want to have to charge you more. But when their oil and everything else goes up, what are they supposed to do? They have to stay open. They have to pay their staff. So it's, it's the blame game is a little kind of murky waters for me. Um, I just wish that they could all get it together so that, you know, it's when you hear the profits of some of these companies too i know i'm all over the place but i mean this just gets me riled up <laughs> and that's why they they're know, having expand this, right? into yeah. a lot of things that are not groceries if you know what i mean mm-hmm. like you know you can buy your candles and your towels at uh, you know some oh, grocery yes, stores right. those kinds yeah. of things right uh but um anyway it's you know uh, it's good to see the politicians talking about it anyway, because that's all anybody else is talking about right now are, are, are the high cost of groceries. 
Well, um, a special event at Government House later this week is planned as Woodrow French is presented with the service medals earned by his late father, Harold, during World War II. You know Woody. I do. He mentioned you to me (laughs) earlier today, by the way. Uh, But yeah, he's going to go, uh, he's going to be at Government House on Friday. The former mayor of uh, CBS has a long naval history and is an avid genealogist. And he joins me now. Hello, Woodrow. How are you? Great. So uh, your father is going to be recognized many years after the fact for his service during World War II. Tell us how you got to this place and, and how these uh, how you came to get these or, or uh, get these medals or have this uh, ceremony take place. Well, um, I've, I've served 10 years in the, um, in the Royal Canadian Air Force myself. And, of course, what is, I guess, unusual to people today but wasn't unusual at the time was the fact that um, I didn't know what my father did during the Second World War, and he never spoke about it, and, and unfortunately I never asked him anything about it. And then a couple of years ago um, it clicked in my mind that um, my father was a um, – a recipient of uh, Veterans Affairs um, benefits, and uh, so I did some checking. And uh, when I did some checking, I was speaking to somebody in Ottawa, and they said, oh, by the way, your father's entitled to medals that he never received. And I said, oh, that's interesting. So um, they um, forwarded the medals to me, and um, um, I then contacted uh, the government house, and Lieutenant Governor was was kind enough to um, to um, present, uh, arrange to have the medals presented to me in a in a bit of a tribute ceremony. Uh, what I think, anyhow. So, uh, what? Tell us a little bit about these medals and and how you, I, I guess, did the research to to get them. Yeah, uh, well, the research t- took place by contacting Veterans Affairs, and then I had to contact the National Archives of Canada and um, see what uh, you know what was uh, any history on it. I was trying to get a hold of his application to Veterans Affairs to see if I could find out exactly what he did. But uh, the information that I got from Veterans Affairs was was not all that great. But it did tell me that he was entitled. Two to four medals, and the four medals are the 1939-1945 Star, and that's Campaign uh, Star uh, instituted by Great Britain in 1943, and it was authorized in Canada in 1946. Uh, the other one was the Atlantic Star, which is a military campaign medal instituted by the UK in May 1944 to award British Commonwealth forces who took part in the Battle of the Atlantic. So. Uh, that was just celebrated, and I could have attended that, I guess. Um, the third one is the Canadian Volunteer Service Medal, and members of the Navy, Military, Air Force of Canada, and the Merchant Marine uh, were eligible if they served in active service and honorably completed 18 months total service. Um, and the last one is the uh, War Medal, 1939-45, and that's a British Campaign Medal instituted by the U.K., in 45, and the medal was awarded to subjects of the British Commonwealth who had served full time, which was considered to be 28 days of service in the armed forces or the merchant navy. And uh, so that's the four medals um, that Her Honor will be uh, presenting to me on Friday. 
So why have you gone to this trouble? Obviously, your father's passed on now, and he might have felt sheepish about it, but uh, it obviously meant a lot to you and your family. Oh, uh, so, so much, and, and such an honor. And, you know, we always have a lot of respect for people who uh, serve in the military, and in particular people who served in the various wars. And, of course, Newfoundlanders were always... Um, first to step up and say, uh, you know, we're going to serve and protect our country. And to have him awarded uh, his medals now um, is is certainly an honor. And I think what happened back in those days, uh, especially in his case, the Merchant Navy wasn't uh, wasn't recognized until later. And who knows, by that time, my father might have said, you know, I'm not interested, blah, 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 and uh, just forgot about it. But uh, I think... I, I thought that it was quite an honor, as did my sister. And, um, you know, I was so happy to find out about his service and to um, be able to have these medals awarded to him uh, in his honor. And I think that, um, you know, uh, I think it's something that um, that's certainly worthy and, and something that I think he should have done back years ago, but too late to worry about that now. Do you think this would have been possible without your knowledge and, I suppose, your dogged determination? I know you're a bit of a genealogist, so you're used to digging around. Uh, do you think it would have been possible without this effort? Oh, no. It, it would have just went, uh, it just would have went um, silent, and that would have been it. Uh, the medals would, uh, it would be probably recorded somewhere that, that, that they never were presented. But um, if nobody went uh, looking for them, they wouldn't have been they wouldn't have been awarded, that's for sure. And um, and it was just um, by sheer determination that I was able to, by keeping on and asking the various questions, that I was able to uh, to locate them and then to find out that uh, they still could be presented. I mean, that was just amazing, um, you know, amazing bit of uh, family history that's, that's going to be honoured. How lovely. Wittro, so happy you shared this story with us. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Linda. And um, certainly if anybody wants to to take that forward, I would certainly uh, encourage them to do that. It it is quite an honour. Well, how many more Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are there out there who are probably entitled to service medals for their um, service during either World War I or World War II and don't have them, never got them, whatever the case may be. Because they haven't been able to do the digging or, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Or, or like uh, he said to me when we were lining up the interview, uh, he said, you know, um, back then a lot of these people came home from the war and um, we spoke to Robert Ludrigan last week and he said the same thing. A lot of people came home from the war and they just never spoke of it again. Which is wonderful that he's able to carry on that legacy by getting that into his family. I can just imagine the feeling that it would be when he actually just has it in his hands and having his family around because his family is coming from all over Canada just for the presentation. It's that link, you know, the medals might be just something like an object, but to him it's it's a connection to his father. And, you know, I I know him so well, obviously, Um, and he is close friends with uh, Wayne Miller, who's huge in Royal Canadian uh, Legion, a 30-year-old vet vet himself and between the two of them they're always trying to make things better for veterans 
um, presently. So it's just their work, even though they're both retired, their work is never undone. Anything that has to do with veterans and making their lives better, that's what they're all about. Yeah, and he's been dedicated, uh, Woodrow French has been dedicated mm-hmm. to that for some time. I don't need to tell you. Um, but just amazing. Uh, if it was anyone else, uh, the argument could be, and he even admitted it himself just then, if it was anybody else, he might not have gotten these medals. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because he knew yeah. they had to have existed and he exactly. knew where to go and he knew how to. But you're right, how many other people out there yeah. don't have that luxury? Yeah, indeed. You know? Just they knew, you know, Pop did something mm-hmm. and uh, Nan was over there doing something, you know, and like, a lo- like he said, a lot of them came home and they just never spoke of it again and didn't want to, you know, just carrying on with life. And the things that they saw and the things that they did and the things that they were involved in, just unbelievable. They wanted to live in the past. Yeah. And so their families now are saying, you know what? I'm proud of what you did. Yeah. It's just amazing. Be a different conversation of people if they were alive today, I would suspect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so that's going to happen at a government house this uh, coming Friday. Yes. I didn't get the date, the times on it. I don't know if you're aware of that. 2 but, p.m., uh, I 2 think. 2 p.m., there you go. Yeah. So, yeah, very exciting for the French uh, family and all their... All the relatives. Relatives. Yep. <laughs> um, uh, Claudette, thanks for this. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow, so do join us then. Um, and uh, thanks for listening, everyone.